This podcast will explore communications across cultures and is brought to you by the People's Association. I'm your host, Ryan Lim. Our first guest in this season is the former Executive Director of Media Practice and Managing Director of Global R&D at Denzel Aegis Network. She has played an integral role in Aegis Media Singapore's office, being identified to spearhead global ambitions in machine learning and AI with the establishment of the group's first global research and development center. With over 25 years of experience in marketing, business, and advertising under her belt, she has worked across multiple industries and has led large multi-market and multicultural teams. She will share her experiences with us today. Let's welcome Audrey Kwa to the Industry Guru podcast series. Hi, Audrey. Thank you for spending time with us today. Before we begin, could you tell us a little bit about yourself as well as your professional journey so far? Uh, so I have been in marketing and business for almost 30 years already. And interestingly, I think my professional journey often married up very well with my personal uh, love, which is actually a great love of travel. When I was in university, I was doing um, sociology as one of my majors. Anthropology was one of my topics. I really enjoyed it because I think it gave me always this window into different cultures and what motivates people, what makes people tick. So interesting enough, when I started my professional career in, in marketing and advertising, a big part of my work obviously is understanding customers, consumers, what motivates them and all of that. And from the very early part of my career, I think just in year two of my, my job, I was quite fortunate to uh, be put on quite a bit of regional type clients. So at a very early professional age, I was kind of exposed to different cultures, different worlds, if you like. I actually started my career in advertising and advertising, I always call it, is like the United Nations of work. Because every agency, every international agency is filled with multicultures, multiracial. I remember having colleagues as far as here in South Africa. So I think from, from get-go, I've always been immersed in this environment where I operated in a multi-racial, multicultural, multilinguistic kind of environment. So it really kind of was a big part of my professional journey and professional career. Therefore, that I guess lends itself to, you know, lots of loops and blunders, but also lots of good about how you interact, how do you communicate, how do you work across different cultures for a common set of results. Then how would you then define cultural intelligence? I'm sure there must be some form of intelligence that you developed along the way that hones your sensitivities that you just mentioned, right? For me, at a very personal level, it's the ability to be respectful and attentive to nuances in a different culture. But I think in business, it's more important than to have this ability translated to achieving the desired results of your business, of your work and all of that. Cultural intelligence was actually um, defined by two researchers in 2002 as just a capability to relate and work effectively across cultures to get uh, results. Is it something like a spin-off from that whole emotional intelligence that I think was started off with Daniel Coleman, right? I think. Yes, I think emotional sometimes is also very inward. Cultural brought in the externality component of it. What would then be the benefits of being cultural intelligent? I think today if you look at the business world around us or the work that we do, right? Very, very few corporations today operate solely in a single geography, in a single market. So by default, most companies today, in some shape and form, operate across multiple cultures. So therefore, being culturally sensitive and intelligent, if you like, is no longer just a personal endeavor. It's actually part and parcel of a corporate DNA, so they can actually continue to drive and sustain business growth. Personally, I think when you're culturally sensitive, it opens up significant opportunities to learn and therefore actually being able to advance and progress yourself. 
I've always said um, in Singapore is I mean we are a small country and obviously we are multicultural, multiracial in our setup. But because because as a country we're a little bit small, I think being conscious and being cognizant of having to always build this cultural quotient, cultural intelligence is quite important because it helps us keep at bay this fraught and well syndrome and also it continues to serve as our own check and balance to ensure that as people living in a multicultural society, we never lose this capacity. In fact, constantly grow this capacity. Is there any difference then between the individual as well as the corporate level in terms of that kind of intelligence that we want to be effective anyways? Well, I think fundamentally corporations are made out of people. So the more people you have stacking up to be culturally conscious, culturally intelligent and culturally cognizant can only put the corporation at a better uh, footing. Uh, and I think companies are extremely conscious of that now. I will say not increasingly, but for some time now, companies have put in place a fair amount of formal corporate cultural learning so that their employees, their leaders, when they kind of step out of the home base, if you like, is constantly kept aware about this need to be culturally sensitive, culturally aware and culturally cognizant. Well, since that there is the drive towards being culturally intelligent, I think all these are boils down to actually perspectives as well, right? So what would be then the key perspectives when we consider this topic of cultural intelligence, especially in the workplace? There is a quite preeminent author in this space called David Livmore. So he, he launched a book called Leading with Cultural Intelligence and how that's the secret of success. And it's actually a bit of a playbook for corporations. And as far as I understand, a lot of corporate kind of culture uh, learning programs actually kind of builds on top of this framework that he kind of put to place. Like. So, and, and I like the framework is very simple. It's only four things. It actually starts from yourself as a person and how it then expands out into an external environment. So the four steps are simply personal drive, knowledge, strategy, and action. So just a little bit about each of the steps, if you like. And like I said, drive starts from internal. So a person needs to actually constantly be personally interested in learning about other cultures outside of themselves, right? So I think it needs to start that way. From there, it builds into a knowledge because that's where you learn how cultures can be similar and different. And, and in knowledge, you must think of it in three subsets, if you like. There's business, and business we are often quite cognizant because you want to learn about different economic structures, etc. right? Interpersonal is where builds on that personal drive because you want to learn about values and norms and, and beliefs of, of somebody else. And last but not least is social uh, linguistics because obviously we all know that different cultures have different ways of expressing themselves. There are actually rules of language of verbal, non-verbal and all that. Strategy is obviously how you then make sure all this comes together and how you, you make sense of it. And last but not least, obviously when you are then in that environment of interaction, it's how you bring all of that together to make it appropriate in the environment, in that setting, and how you communicate with, with others. How can we then be effective team players, you know, especially when working in an environment, and I'm sure you're no stranger to that, having been in uh, culturally diverse <laughs> environments. I would say there are three ingredients actually for successfully working in culturally diverse environments. First is to listen more than you talk. I think to actively listen is an extremely underrated skill but it is extremely critical when you work in culturally diverse teams. The second is to be respectful and humble. The way you physically come into an interaction, when you're respectful and humble, it instantly lowers all sorts of barriers in that setting. And you can actually use that as a great starting point. And last but not least, is to actually proactively learn about the cultures that you will be operating in. Succinctly kind of put together all my experience is, is actually these three things. But like I said, I think none of this suggests that you need to be a pushover or a doormat. But to me, these three ingredients gives you the starting point 
to successfully navigate as well as work in or lead even cross-cultural teams. Well, it seems like what you've just mentioned requires a lot of humility in the first place. To come to the fact that to realize that we don't know everything, that's why we <laughs> listen more than we talk. You also must be empathetic to learn more from the other guy as well, yes? From your experience then, is there any like good tips when it comes to communication? Because language sometimes can be a facilitator as well as a barrier, right? <laughs> in such a diverse environment. No, absolutely. So um, in the mid-90s, I actually worked in Burma, now, now Myanmar. So I worked in Myanmar for two years. And importantly, it was a country that was just starting to open to foreign investors only. So I remember that one of the big things was, I, I, I used to be extremely frustrated because I would hear the word yes a lot. And so in, in, in Singapore, yes means agreement, right? Yes, I will do this. And so whenever I heard yes, and then after that, things never quite happened, right? So I used to get really, really frustrated. I used to knock my head against, you know, many, many imaginary walls, many, many times. But somehow, maybe after by the millionth knock, I suddenly realised that yes was not the same as agree in Burmese language. Yes simply meant, I hear you, I'm listening to you, right? I acknowledge that you have spoken. So weirdly, with this really um, slow realisation, but eventual breakthrough, I learned then to frame questions and listen to answers and then seek to clarify so that I can still deliver my work because I was working for a five-star hotel and I still had to deliver the work. My GM is not going to accept that because I misunderstood, you know, um, therefore I cannot deliver, right? To me, it was a big lesson to learn about culture, language and nuances proactively. To ask, you know, what do people mean when they say so not to be afraid. So I think that was my, my first big aha moment about proactively learning about the culture that I'll be operating in. Also in a very diverse region as well, right? ASEAN is made of so many different cultures, languages and all those things. It's actually very interesting too, right? to find out more about the slight differences but can make a huge difference, right? Oh yes, huge, huge difference, yeah? Between delivering your work and not delivering, yeah, literally. So with differences comes clashes, right? So from your experience, is there any like no-go sensitive topics that can often lead to misunderstandings? Misunderstandings happen sometimes at a small level first before it gets to the big stuff. I remember um, an experience we had with our Japanese team. So Japan, obviously, today we're all very cognizant of the fact that Japan is a very high non-verbal language society. Uh, so I remember we had a new boss that came to join our Asia Pacific team. Uh, we had a call and then my Japanese colleagues were on the call. And I remember he was asking lots of questions, firing questions at them. And they were very, very quiet, you know, and then he got very frustrated. So a bunch of us then decided to jump in at that moment to kind of call the call to a close. At the back, we actually then had a separate call with him and explained the nuance about Japan being a highly non-verbal language society. So the point was if they understand the language very, very well, but they would struggle to answer the questions come to them in a barrage. So we, we then explained to him that perhaps if you have a lot of questions, you need to actually submit pre-reads, you need to send the questions beforehand, and then explain that on the call, you want question one, five, and seven answers. Like I said, that, that created actually a lot of tension. There was a lot of misunderstandings. The Japanese team got their backs up, very unhappy. So to me, misunderstandings can start from very small things. Like somebody would think of this as not being a big thing, but it actually can start that way. And obviously, you know, you can then swing to the end where somebody comes in really like a bull in a china shop and ignoring every signal being sent and then being extremely arrogant and insensitive, if you like, right, to the environment, to the context, and then getting everybody's gander up. Because English is often our first language, and I think English strangely as a language for business is very, I would say, very direct and it lacks 
you know, subtlety and style as a business language. I mean, I'm not talking about Robert Force for poems and all that, right? But in Asia Pacific, a lot of languages are actually not like that. I always say a lot of Asia Pacific languages are actually quite curvy. So things are said very subtly, things are said very um, politely. So when we come in with our Queen's English, uh, it, it actually can set up a bit of distance between us and our colleagues and our teams and our partners in terms of trying to get more effective in how we speak to one another. Then it seems like there's a lot of groundwork that's necessary to build up to this understanding. I mean, is there any thoughts that you have, perhaps how should we approach to seek consensus, especially when we know that there are differences? And how can we go about it without having to sacrifice any of the uh, overall workplace diversity that we're talking about? Interestingly enough, um, I had a boss when I was in the travel business. And again, travel, again, you know, we work with people of, of different markets, countries and all that. I remember on a call we had with our colleagues in the region. And you know, usually on regional calls, people love to talk about differences. Because differences gives sometimes the country the leeway to do things themselves, right? So you don't have to fall in line, if you like, with a regional guideline. I remember my boss made one comment and, and it was quite an interesting comment which stuck in my head and I think it's, it's actually a way of how you actually seek consensus. So he asked around the round table, conference call, you know, no video. And he asked, he said, so if I cut you, what color is your blood? What, what, what color do you bleed, right? And obviously everybody said red, 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 red. Then he said, so actually, as business people, we actually possibly have more in common to try and get to a agreed point then we have differences. And then suddenly there was silence around the call. <laughs> and then he straight then he went in from there on let's go. So let's why not let's start with agreeing where is it that we want to get to first, right? So what is our objective? And then you actually started seeing people fall in. Because then he says where I can accept then is some diversity and some spread in how we get there. But as long as we agree that, okay, as the business, we want to grow this amount, our key product is this, you know, we are going to look at pricing this way, etc. etc then how we tweak some of the nitty-gritties in Indonesia, in Brunei, in Philippines and all that, then I think we can allow for some of that flexibility. So I, I thought his, his analogy of how we actually bleed more similarly than we bleed differently was a, a lesson learned on how we actually, uh, for me personally, when I started working and running teams across regions, how do we get to consensus? So I've, I learned from him to always start with what is it that we want to achieve together, right? I think that that was a, a lesson I learned when I was a very young executive, but you know, constantly applied through the decades, if you like, yeah. So it's actually to proactively look and seek common ground first, right? To establish the commonalities, because if there's no shared commonalities and in terms of objectives, you, you can't agree on anything, <laughs> too different. So maybe if I can shift gears and go on a personal level, what's your most challenging encounter so far when it comes to cross-cultural communication? I mean, and maybe perhaps also share a little bit uh, with our listeners, how did you overcome it? My, my biggest learning experience really was, was when, I, when I went to Burma. Like I said, I was, I was young, you know, and it was my first time living and immersing myself in a culture 24-7. Right. Prior to that, I've done you know business trips and all that, but those were three, four days things. So you gotta get a bit, but you don't get the full spectrum of it. When I moved to Myanmar, the first thing was you know completely bringing my Singapore efficient, effective kind of mindset to a, a new place. And and during my time, obviously those days there were no cultural immersion training. Right. You you you're literally chucked there and then you get figured out lah. Trial by fire. <laughs> yeah, literally. And I remember my GM used to say um. 
you know, we hire professionals so they can get things going, all right? I should be able to plug you and put you into Switzerland or, or, or Myanmar and, you know, you all should be able to do the same thing. Really, the school of hard knocks for me through those two years where every one step you take, you, you learn, you know, like, okay, oh, yes, it's not yes, you know. There is no real no because as a culture, they don't say no. When, you know, how do you actually uh, get around the fact that they don't like debates? Because, like I said, the time, the, the whole environment then was not about debates and everything. You could get into a lot, lot of trouble if you did that. So how do you kind of, in there, where you're living 24-7, where you have to deliver your work, uh, where you are the minority, how, how do you learn to actually dial back your own aggression, for one of a better phrase? So, to me, it was a huge humbling experience. Really, really brought me back down to earth, crashing, you know, literally. And from there, I actually learned to respect that people really can get things going in their own way, but they can still help, you know, co-achieve and co-deliver things together. I came to, to really respect, you know, how people in very different and difficult circumstances really come out of themselves. And last but not least, again, going back to people are more, more similar than they are different was um, the fact that they wanted to learn about us. They, they wanted to learn, you know, how we do things, right? So, so that part, you kind of forget sometimes. So when you remove your, your ego out of the equation, when you kind of humble yourself down, and then suddenly you can have people around the table and then you can start talking about things, you know? And, and finally, fascinating moments came together was we had to do Mooncake Festival, right? And up to that point, Mooncake Festival is not very big in Burma yet, right? I was having to explain to our creative team what Mooncake Festival. So I was telling the story of Tang'e and all that, right? Because by that moment, by that time, really, we had learned to remove our ego from conversations. We were coming to the table very open-minded and all that. And a Burmese art director actually understood the whole narrative, the whole story, and what it meant as well beyond you know the the, the table. I remember when he came back with a creative concept. Till today, right? I, I must say, it's still one of the best mooncake executions I've ever done or I've ever seen. But for me, it was a, when I walked away from the experience, I, I took away more than just obviously a good campaign. I took away that, like I said, the ego, the, the arrogance, the I'm better than you, here to teach you, all of that away. You will come together and mutually grow together as well. So that to me has stuck with me after you know, 25 years actually. Yeah. Thank you again, Audrey, for sharing your candid views and valuable insights. I'm sure our friends from the PMET network community who are listening in will benefit greatly. Most of all, thank you listeners for tuning in to the People's Association Industry Guru podcast series. For more information, email us at pa underscore lifeskills underscore lifestyle at pa.gov.sg. That is pa underscore life skills underscore lifestyle at pa.gov.sg do remember to subscribe to our channel and be updated on our latest episode i'm your host ryan Mip, and i look forward to having you in our next episode